You know, there, are re- there really are a few things more consequential to our lives as the way we define success. And it deserves thinking about. Because however you define a successful life or a good life will determine the way you spend your time and your money, the way you aim your efforts in life. Some people, you know, it's cliche, but some people define success as owning a a large home or a supercar or having lots of property and things on that property. Other people put it into their job. I want to have a certain title on my business card. And so they, they, they strive for those things. They wake up in the morning and they're, they're worshiping the dollar. They're going to work, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to move up in the company. And it's, you know, immortalized in that bumper sticker that we all have seen. He who dies with the most toys wins. But is that really success? You know, we, we know it's not. But how easily we get caught up with false ideas of what constitutes a life successfully lived. And it happens in the church, too. And this morning, I get to preach about something that I'm kind of passionate about and something I feel like I've been wrestling with the Lord about for like the past six or eight weeks. And as I was preparing this passage of Jesus healing people and praying in the wilderness, it dawned on me that what we have before us in this text are two definitions of ministry success. On the one hand, you have Jesus, along with the Father, before the sun's even up, refocusing on the mission he'd received from God. On the other, you have the disciples, distracted, focused on the miracles, the fruit of Jesus' ministry, barging into his quiet time. And I think that we need to ponder what that might tell us about ourselves. And so this is what I want to share with you this morning, church. We can't let ministry fruit distract us from following Jesus and fulfilling our mission. I think that has a very specific application to the life of Central Baptist Church. And so if you're a guest today and you don't consider this your church home, you're going to kind of be listening in on God's word to our church family. And I hope you're encouraged by it and I hope you're instructed by it. But I especially hope if this is your church I hope you listen close. So we we come in on this verse, verse 29, and we pick up where we left off last week. I told you last week that verses 21 to 28 and then 29 to 39 really represent a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. Mark zooms in on what the first day of Jesus' public ministry looked like. Of course, in our series, we've already seen that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, We've seen him anointed by the Spirit, affirmed by the Father, tempted by Satan, and then coming out of the wilderness to preach. Mark 1, 14 and 15. The times fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. From there he goes and calls these fishermen brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, and he calls them to follow him and promises that if they will, he'll make them fishers of men. And so they're following along behind him, and he walks right into the city of Capernaum, where last week we saw him in the synagogue, teaching with authority and commanding demons to come out of people. And of course, we saw how amazed the people were. They're they're marveling at him. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. 
And I told you that all these miracles, all this authority is evidence that Jesus builds his kingdom by powerfully exerting, not exhorting, exerting his authority over all things. So when we come to verse 29, we, we pick up the story. We see him expressing his authority over religious truth and over unclean spirits. And then in verses 29 to 39, we see his authority over sickness. But there's deeper stuff going on. Of course, there's, there's more to the story with Jesus everywhere we go. And I love the way that this happens. I mean, he leaves the synagogue service, goes to Simon's house for fried chicken, coleslaw, sweet tea, and there's the mother-in-law, sick in the bed with a fever. And so Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, hey, my mother-in-law is sick in the other room. Would you mind coming and taking a look at her? And Jesus goes in, and, and Mark tells us just like matter-of-factly, he takes her by the hand, and she gets up and serves him. He just speaks the word, and she's healed. Meanwhile, all the people who were at church that morning went home to their family and friends and spread the word about Jesus' miraculous authority, that he teaches with authority, and that he casts out unclean spirit, and he's just staying around the corner at Simon's house. And so when the sun went down, and it was permissible for them to travel again, they went out to the front door. Mark tells us that the whole city's there. Uh, the whole city of Capernaum gathers at Jesus' door because every last one of them have heard the good news about Jesus, the miracle worker who's there, and they've got sick family members, they've got people in their extended relations that have demons, and so they bring them to Jesus to be healed. And he does it, exerting his authority over all things, even sickness. For us, the healing ministry of Jesus is one of those things we know well and, and we cherish. Think about all the people in the Gospels that Jesus comes in contact and heals. Blind people. Think about the man born blind in John chapter 8. Disciples say, who, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? Jesus said, neither, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Think about the deaf people who couldn't hear, and Jesus opened their ears. Think about the lame people, the people who couldn't walk, who are sitting on a mat, just hoping that somebody would take notice of them, and Jesus says, get up and walk. Think of the woman with the hemorrhage of blood who just touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. I mean, the healing ministry of Jesus is one of those things that's just so beautiful and cherished by us. We, we think of him as our healer. But for those people in Capernaum, it was a really novel experience to witness firsthand somebody just speaking the words and experiencing healing. No prayers, no anointing with oil. Jesus just lifts the lady up out of the bed, and he says, you're well. I mean, this is none other than the radical inbreaking of the kingdom of God into a world of sickness and death. Everywhere he goes, he's on mission, preaching the gospel, and backing it up with miraculous outpourings of his power. Everywhere he goes, he says the kingdom of God is at hand, and people see with their own eyes the evidence that what he's saying is true. And so it just piles up. I mean, they have this bottleneck. Everybody's trying to press into the door, and Jesus just keeps healing and healing and healing. And in each case, he is further unveiling his identity. Who is Jesus? Who is he? You think about what his healing ministry says about that. The Bible talks about God as healer over and over and over. If you look up that phrase, God healer, in a Bible software, one of the first places you come to is uh, Exodus 15. And God's just basically um, 
leveled all the gods of Egypt by sending plagues on the Egyptians. And he comes to Israel and he tells them in Exodus 15, 26, he says, listen, if y'all will obey all of my commandments and walk with me faithfully, then none of these plagues are going to come upon you guys. For I, the Lord, am your healer. That's Jehovah Rapha, God the healer. Psalm 103, which Matt Redman wrote, Bless the Lord, O my soul, from. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So in Psalm 103, verse 3, he says, He heals all your diseases. Like God as healer is one of these things the Bible just holds up again and again and again and again. As God's people think about who he is to them, they think about him being healer. You think about Psalm 147, verses 2 to 3. It says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. There are probably some people here today who have experienced that kind of healing from God. Not just physical illness, but you're talking about a broken heart. We're talking about the God who sees every tear you cry and catches them in a bottle. He writes them down in his book. He cares about us and he heals us. Furthermore, the prophet said that God's healing power was going to be one sign of the Messiah. Um, Isaiah 53 is the beautiful passage. Um, talks about God's suffering servant. And it says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. So, when Jesus' healing ministry breaks out in Capernaum, it's one more example of Jesus' authority. I'm exerting my authority over all things. He's going behind enemy lines, planting his flag, saying, I'm establishing a kingdom. There's not going to be any sickness or death there. Backing up the gospel he preached with proof. They revealed his authority and power. Because of that, they teach us to fully expect more and more of what we see. They're a revelation of who he is, and wherever Jesus goes, Jesus is going to do the kinds of things that Jesus does. This healing stuff is part and parcel of his ministry. Furthermore, this authority that we've talked about last week and this week is something that Jesus gladly delegates to others. So in Matthew 10, verse 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus called the 12 disciples, and he called them apostles, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And they go, and they preach the gospel of the kingdom in every home who will accept them, and they cast out demons, and they heal sick people. And when they come back to Jesus, they tell him, can you believe it? The demons obeyed us. And the story of the church in the early book of Acts, early chapters of Acts, is more examples of this. Peter and John go to the temple to preach, and a man begging there asks for some money, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I, do give, what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. The man gets up and walks. So Jesus' healing ministry is an expression of his authority as Messiah and Son of God, and he gladly delegates it. And he even told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, and they were to therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that he's commanded. 
This is the first thing we got to see this morning about this whole healing ministry and the fruit of it in Capernaum. It's simply this, that ministry fruit is evidence of Jesus' authority, and it should be expected. Okay? Think about that. Ministry fruit, like the healings in Capernaum, is evidence of Jesus' authority, and it should be expected. Nobody had any doubts. Nobody in the synagogue, nobody outside of Peter's house had any doubts that Jesus was something special. He was in charge. And that's why they all lined up to have him exert his authority over the sickness and over the demons that were afflicting their families. And I think this is still true today. Ministry fruit is evidence of Jesus' authority and should be expected. You know, there's this line of thinking out there, and I slip into it sometimes too. It's everywhere. That our world is so dark and our culture is changing so fast that there's nothing the church can do to keep up. You know, you hear statistics about the dying churches. Um, there's a pretty, uh, I don't know, I guess trustworthy voice in the convention of churches that it's called the Southern Baptist Convention that says 80% of Southern Baptist churches are either plateaued or declining. Without some kind of radical change, a move of the Holy Spirit, something, they will eventually die. That's pretty depressing stuff. You know, you read about pastors leaving the ministry. Have y'all seen anything about that over the last year and a half? To say it's picking up speed, I've got two good friends who have made the decision that they're leaving ministry full-time. They still love the Lord, still walking with Jesus, just don't want to be a pastor anymore. You, you hear about Christians deconstructing their faith, about abandoning the things they once hold to be true. And you start to buy into that whole idea. Man, maybe the world is such a dark place, like what can Christians do? What, what hope? We're like kids with squirt guns on a five-alarm fire. Like, what are we going to do? But then you come back and you, and you see stuff like this in the Scriptures, where Jesus casually walks into a home, and there's a woman in the back room on the verge of death, overwhelmed with fevers. And he doesn't go into some elaborate ritual, doesn't pull out his little attache case with a special anointing oil. He just goes in, takes her by the hand, and picks her up. And then he does it again and again and again. Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. Give her something to eat. This is the Jesus we claim to love and worship. A Jesus full of authority. That Wherever he goes, fruit follows. Jesus just does what Jesus does. And so, I don't know. The world is dark. I get that. But aren't we hanging our hope on a God who overcomes the world? A God who shines light in darkness? I, I get that culture is changing rapidly, but Jesus doesn't change, and he's still in control and authoritative. And so I'm banking all my life on his promise to build his church, and that ministry fruit is a natural, inevitable outflow of who Jesus is, and I'm going to expect it. Uh, it may not always make sense, but I'm going to fully expect God to call men and women to new life through his son Jesus. That they're going to abandon lives of sinfulness and trust wholeheartedly in Jesus. I'm fully expecting marriages that are on the verge of breaking down to experience supernatural reconciliation. Expecting kids and parents to know some kind of deeper love than they could know on their own. I'm expecting lost people to flood the gates just like they did in Capernaum. Because Jesus is who he says he is. He's authoritative. He has authority over all things, still, even now. 
And he's working. Every time the word of God is preached, he's extending his authority, the range of his effective will. He's making his kingdom come. And so ministry fruits, the evidence of Jesus' authority and should be expected. You with me on that? Okay, so think about this about ministry fruit. Ministry fruit is exciting, but it can also be deceiving and distracting. I mean, how would you respond to those events in Capernaum? And what would you do? Just a few days ago, you were hauling nets. And now you're following this guy, Jesus, from a little know-nothing place of Nazareth, and he walks into a synagogue and teaches like you'd never heard anybody teach before. And he commands demons, and they come out of people. And your mother-in-law, whom you've learned to love, is dying, and he walks in and picks her up out of the bed. What do you, how do you respond to that? And I think the disciples were about as excited as any person could possibly be. They learned their whole life that Yahweh was faithful to his people. And though the culture was dark and changing and the government was kind of crazy, someday God was going to send his Messiah and he was going to establish his throne in Jerusalem and reign over his people forever. And you're starting to believe that maybe Jesus, the one prophesied by the prophets, proclaimed by John, affirmed by the Spirit and the Father, maybe you're thinking he is the guy. He says the time fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then he backs it up with miracles, outpourings of the Spirit's power. And you're convinced this has got to be somebody special. Could this be the Christ? And so you go to bed that first night totally excited. Man, what could tomorrow bring? If this was just the first day of following Christ, imagine what tomorrow's got in store. And so all these guys pile into Peter's house. This is not in the scriptures. This is my imagination. Imagine all these guys piled in the house, sleeping on couches and on pallets in the floor. In the middle of the night, Peter wakes up, looks around, takes, you know, situational awareness of his house, trying to see what's all going on, and he notices Jesus' bedroll's empty. So he gets up, thinks about it. I wonder where he could have gone. But hey, he's the guy in charge. Let's give him some time. He'll come back. So he lays back down, and about the time the sun coming up, hear a knock on the door. There's a little old lady with a walker. She said, hey, I couldn't make it yesterday, but is Jesus here? And Peter's like, is, is Jesus back? They're like, no, he's not back yet. And he's like, hold on a second, let me figure this out. So he goes back in and he huddles up with Andrew, James, and John, and he says, all right, guys, we've got to find Jesus. People are already starting to pile up. It's going to be another busy day. Let's find him. Meanwhile, more and more people are stacking up outside the door, and the search gets really frantic. In fact, uh, Mark tells us, my, my Bible says they, they searched for Jesus, verse 36. But the word they use, actually pretty rare in the New Testament, it, it's probably better translated as pursued, because the other places it's used in ancient Greek literature, it's used of one army pursuing an army in retreat. Uh, you could say hunted. It's like what happens when you leave the house and get in your car and you realize you don't have your phone. So you go back in and it's nowhere to be found. This is a recurring problem for me. And it's like, where did my stuff go? It's a frantic search. That's what they undertake, a frantic search for Jesus because there are a lot of sick people out here who need you, Jesus. Where are you? So finally they find him in probably the most unlikely place they could ever have imagined. It's a secluded place, the wilderness and he's down on his knees praying. And I love this about the scriptures. I know 
a lot of people have different views about it. Y'all know I'm unapologetically a Bible guy. Because if I were writing a book about the supposed pillars of our faith, like Peter, James, and John, I'd, I'd remove all the blemishes and warts. The scriptures present us to th- them to us in perfect 3D. We see them, flaws and all. Peter, you know, is a hothead. And I completely sympathize with what happens here in the second half of our passage. Because they barge in, I think, with good intentions. And they've just witnessed Jesus' miraculous power poured out on behalf of sick and possessed people. And they've got a crowd of folks gathering down in town. And they see the opportunity. Jesus, isn't this what you're all about? Isn't this your whole plan? Aren't, aren't you out here to help people? Aren't you the guy who said the Spirit of the Lord is upon you to preach good news to the poor? Well, there's a bunch of poor and sick people down here who need you. Where are you? Lots of sick folks, Jesus. Get down here. You're missing an opportunity. I think of what Henry Blackaby said in his book, Experiencing God. I know some of y'all have been through that. And basically the premise is we need to be on the lookout for where God's at work and join him in it. I think the disciples are thinking the seven key steps of experiencing God. Where is God at work right now? He's at work through Jesus healing these people in Capernaum. We need to get back down there and get involved. He's a huge success. But to Jesus, that fruit was a little bit deceiving. I mean, Jesus saw through the people. They're all stacking up outside the door because they're sick and they need to be healed. Nobody falls down at his feet and praises him. Nobody repents of their sin and says, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. They're there to get their spiritual needs met. Jesus saw right through them. It's a a recurring problem for Jesus. Um, Eventually, he's going to feed 5,000 people just with a prayer. He's going to multiply loaves and fishes. And those people are going to leave. And then he's going to walk across water. And then he's going to end up on the other side. And the people are going to realize that he's on the other side. And so they chase him down. And he tells them in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, Not because you saw signs, because signs would help a person know who he is and it would lead them to faith. See, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. People are always looking for opportunities to experience what Jesus had on offer. And from the outside looking in, wow, what a huge success. we got a whole town full of people. Let's just set up camp here. Maybe the kingdom of God can just start right here in Capernaum. This is like heaven on earth. God pouring out his blessing on people, setting them free from oppression, healing of all their diseases. Wow, praise God, what a huge success. Man, all that fruit was so deceiving. Numbers don't always mean ministry success. Are we to believe that when Constantine converted to Christianity in 381 and officially made Christianity the sanctioned religion of the empire and forced conversion on all people on pain of death, that that's the kind of ministry success we're looking for? We want people to convert at the end of a sword. We want to lead children to profess faith in Christ because we offer them candy at the end of VBS. I mean, that happened to some of us, maybe. That's numbers, that's fruit, that's success. But is that really what we're after? I mean, Jesus told the church in Sardis, he said, I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So it's possible for ministry fruit to be deceiving, to give the appearance of health and of life, but on the inside to be full of rotten bones. Churches run into this problem because you can plan yourself into the appearance of life. You can 
put events on the calendar and people show up and you're like, wow, look at all the people we had. Look at all the baptisms we had. Look at all the people who are coming to church. Look at all the money that's coming in. But looks can be deceiving. It's not always true. So fruit can be deceiving. It can also be distracting. This is probably where I feel most in the spotlight by God. You think about Peter, James, John, Andrew. They've been with Jesus in doing public ministry for like 24 hours. And they got into this thing because he looked at them while they were mending their nets and said, follow me. Like that's how they got in on this thing. Follow me. They didn't follow him out into the wilderness to pray. I imagine him like a personal assistant with one of those black day planners walking up. Hey, just want to let you know, Jesus, uh, you you got an appointment down. And there's some people waiting to see you. Whenever you're ready, I know you're praying and all that, but hey, just whenever you get a chance, come back with us. There are a lot of people who need to be healed. They're supposed to be following, but they're dictating to him the schedule of his day, where his priorities ought to be. They're the ones who are supposed to learn from Jesus, and here they are telling him where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to be doing. And what changed? What changed from the radical Jesus is calling, I'm going to leave my nets and my dad, and I'm going to go wherever he goes and do whatever he does. I'll follow him even to death if he asks what happened to that attitude? What, what changed in 24 hours? Well, they experienced a smattering of ministry success. All that following stuff, well, it's obvious this is what you're after. They were distracted from the main thing by all the people lined up being healed. So ministry fruit's distracting. Peter suffers from this over and over and over again. Uh, even after the resurrection, the disciples are like, hey, is it at this time that you're going to um, you know, hand over the kingdom to Israel? They never quite understand what Jesus is up to. And, and instead of being his followers and disciples, they end up standing in his way a lot. And this especially happens in Mark 8. Uh, Mark 8 is the climax of Mark's whole book, and we're not going to even get there until next school year. So I'm not even really stealing my thunder or anything. But it, it finally builds to this point where Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give him the definitions, you know, like, well, Jesus, uh, people say you're Elijah or maybe a prophet resurrected from the dead. He said, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And from that moment forward, Jesus' attitude and relationship with the disciples is totally different. Uh, in fact, he tells them right after that not to tell anybody don't tell anybody, this is Mark 8.30. In Mark 8.31 it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And just so we got it, Mark tells us, He was stating the matter plainly. Hey, I just want to tell you guys how it is. Up until this point we've seen lots of success, growing conflict, sure, the religious people are upset, but man... We have a popular movement taking hold here. And when I get to Jerusalem, I'm not going to set up my, my throne like you guys are expecting. Instead, I'm going to lay down my life. And Peter says, no, Lord. Mark says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You now, the other gospel writers tell us that he says, I'll never let this happen to you. You know, you can ma- imagine him throwing some swear words in there and some oaths. Cross my heart, hope to die. You, this ain't happened to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, 
but on man's. And that's what happens with ministry fruit. It distracts us from God's interest unto our interest. The disciples had been called into this movement, this great coming kingdom. Man, I want to get in on that. And at the first sign of success, they pump the brakes. They start figuring out how they're going to entrench their position. They're going to take a foothold here in Capernaum. It's going to spread out. It's going to be great, Jesus. we got a whole plan. Uh, we'll talk about it tonight after dinner. You know, that's the disciples totally distracted by the little bit of fruit they've experienced. And that's always the risk God's people run. You know, we know that ministry fruit's the evidence of Jesus' authority. I told you that already. It's the evidence of Jesus' authority. It should be expected. And then when it happens, like people line up outside of Peter's house to get healed, they got all discombobulated. They're like, what do we do in here? Um, they start out with good intentions. Hey, we're going wherever Jesus goes. This kingdom mission is great. But then here it is. And how many times churches do the same thing? You start to experience a little bit of growth. Your thought is, well, hey, we got some, we got some people coming now. What do we need to do to keep this thing going? Man, we, man, our groups are really taking off. How do we make sure that our groups keep going harder? And, and you, you start focusing on maintenance. What do we do to keep this ship going straight? How do you keep it on the road between the lines? You know, all those great management cliches. It, you get focused on the work of ministry. And lose sight of the mission. But that's not the way Jesus works. Jesus wasn't distracted. He wasn't deceived. Jesus was on mission. The only way you keep ministry fruit in its proper perspective is by pursuing God and focusing on his mission. That's the last point I want you to see. Ministry fruit's in proper perspective only when we pursue God and focus on his mission. Now, the reason Peter and the others had to search for Jesus is that he'd left early to pray in a secluded place, which is, which is just amazing to think about. Um, maybe you're like me, and you always have great intentions of your quiet times in the morning. You set your alarm a little bit early because you're like, tomorrow's the day. Before the sun comes up, I'm going to meet face-to-face -face with God. And sometimes it works, and other times it's like, God's there whether the sun's up or not. So he's gonna, he'll be there when I get there. Lord, give me a minute. I'm getting a little slow this morning. But Jesus never missed an appointment with God. I mean, he did whatever he had to do to meet face-to-face -face with God because that was his priority. That's what he was motivated by. You know, he, he knew something deep in his own soul that all that ministry fruit didn't come from nowhere. I mean, he just spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying, having his sense of mission refined by the Father, and here he comes out in the world to preach for the first time. And it's like 24 hours, again, like we're talking one day. And already the roar of the crowds and the appeals for his attention and time started to press in on his sense of mission. He couldn't stay in Capernaum and pray. Too many people there. He had to get out to a desolate place, a wilderness place, an empty place, and pray. He's cultivating it and refining his relationship with God through prayer. And for prayer to be such a big deal in his life is kind of surprising. Mark only mentions prayer, Jesus praying, three times in his gospel. He mentions it here. He mentions it when he um, multiplies the loaves and feeds the 5,000. It says he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. And then Mark shows us him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified. And in each instance, Jesus' time of silent, alone prayer 
him and God, represents a crisis point, a turning point in his ministry. I don't know that, I don't, doesn't say this in the scripture, but you got to wonder if this is Satan coming back with another temptation. Listen, Jesus, just set up shop in Capernaum. You got all these people coming to you. You won't have to go anywhere. They're all going to come to you. You just stay put and let the crowd stream in. You know, what was he feeling? What was he hearing? Like, are you sure, Father, that you have a cross for me in the end of my life? Because right now, this is looking pretty good. Seems like people are pretty ready for what you've got in store. Why not just pour it out now? I don't know. I know that's how it works for me. So Peter and the disciples are on their hunt, and they finally come to Jesus, and they barge in. And like I told you, I think it's because they feel like he's missing a, a prime opportunity. They think they know what God's up to. It's like, hey, we get prayers important, but there's something more important happening down in town. And because of that, we get the stark difference between their definition of success and Jesus's. They think prayer is a diversion from the important work that Jesus has to do. But Jesus sees that the important work wouldn't happen without his relationship with the Father. I mean, he says in John 4, 34, that his food was to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. And the reason there was fruit to begin with was because Jesus was in lockstep with what the Father was doing. My Father's been at work, and I'm working too. He's going where the Father leads him. He's working under the authority of the Father, working through him by the Spirit. That is who Jesus is. The relational dynamic, the vertical, enabled the horizontal. And he knew that better than anybody. So he got up in the middle of the night when nobody was asking for his attention, and he prayed. He refocused on what he was all about. He refined his relationship with the Father because ministry fruit is always a byproduct of our relationship with God. But then he responds to them. They barge in, and they're like, hey, there are a lot of people downtown. You've got to come. And, and then he says what's so surprising. You just got to think their, their reactions. You know, their, their chins are down at their feet. Like, what are you talking about? They, he says, let us go somewhere else the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that's what I came for. There's a bunch of people down here in this town, but let's go somewhere else. In fact, the words used to describe Capernaum, Capernaum's a polis, um, but the word towns refers to not a polis, not an official city, but little know-nothing villages that existed in the orbit of Capernaum. So Jesus is like, we're leaving all these people and big city life, and we're going to the know-nothing places because i got to preach there too. That's a purpose I was sent for. Jesus' response drives us back to his mission. That time in prayer had refined him. It had shored him up. He knew what he was sent to do. And he, he was sent to preach. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' whole mission in life was to go everywhere he could go and speak to every person he could speak to and tell them about the coming of God's kingdom and the demand it made on their life. Samaritans, Jews, rich, poor, tax collectors, rabbis, it didn't matter. Jesus was out there to preach the good news to the people who needed to hear it. He, he was willing to leave sick people behind to preach. What a, that's shocking. Would we have made that same decision? 
I mean, here, here the disciples come up. There's a crowd of people looking for you, Jesus, and they're real sick. There's a crazy guy with a demon. He needs you real bad. But Jesus was willing to say no to that, to the good things he could have done in Capernaum, because there was something better. All those good things took a backseat to the one thing, the reason, the purpose, the mission he had from God. Don't you wish you had a clarity about your mission like that? God, what one thing do you want me to do before I die? Oh, it was so clarifying for Jesus. All these competing demands for his attention and his time. All clarified under one thing. This is the reason I was sent. That God would give us that reason. That we each would know. Before I die, Lord, this thing. And thankfully, he's told us. He told us all what his desire for us is. Is that we glorify him. Is that our lives would bring him praise. And then he tells us as his people. We don't have to, you know, spitball and brainstorm a great mission statement. He, he did it for us. Make disciples. I told him in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Go into the world making disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to deserve everything I've commanded you. I like Matthew 24, 14. He's telling them about the end of the world, which we all have a vested interest in understanding. And they're asking questions. You know, when is it coming? What's it going to be like? How will we know? He tells them Matthew 24, 14. Write this down. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached at the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. The end is coming, but some things have to happen first. Not some worldwide government got to take root before the end can come. Antichrist has to show up, and then the end can come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the end of the earth, and then the end will come. That's the one purpose. That's to bring glory to God by announcing the good news that he sent his only son, Jesus, to live a sinless life and die on the cross and raise him up from the dead so that whoever believes in him will never die but live forever in his eternal kingdom. That's the mission, to make sure every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth hears that before they die. How clarifying would that be? What good things could we do, Lord? Well, what one thing has he commanded? And Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 2, I made it my aim to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, our, our, we're doing this gospel project, and I really love it. Y'all know I'm a Bible guy. It's taken us to the Bible in three years from kids to senior adults. All of us learning the same thing every week. That's really cool. That's really a great thing. But, you know, they, they have in there this element of the curriculum, the 99 essential doctrines. 99 essential doctrines. Do you know them all? What about the 100th non-essential doctrine? Do you know that one? There's a lot of good things to teach and preach, Paul. 99 essential doctrines that everybody's got to know. I made it my aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's one. There's one thing worth knowing. 
and it's him. The Son of God, Messiah, sinless one, crucified for you. There's one thing worth knowing. There's one mission. All of us called to it, to give our lives so that those who don't know Jesus could. One mission. Oh, but ministry fruit comes in. Clouds the clarity comes from that mission. Maintaining programs, running churches, you know, all these wonderful things. And we forget there's one thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, and it hit me this week. I've been reflecting on the past two years, and y'all know we've got the task force thinking about the next five to ten years of our church. And I got invited to a meeting on Tuesday to talk about the long-term effects of the pandemic on churches and all this stuff. And I realized like two years ago, I preached a sermon on September 8th from Romans 6. And the title, the series was The DNA of a Healthy Church. And the title of the sermon was, A Healthy Church Has an Expectation of Changed Lives. Now, at the time, I thought that was, like, really risque. It's like, I'm going in here, and I'm preaching that we're going to expect God to change people's lives. And, you know, he did it. I came in. Y'all had read this book. I've heard about it several times from multiple people. Y'all had read a book together as a church. If you were here a couple years ago, the, the autopsy of a deceased church. And we all prayed, hey, God, breathe life into this church again. Make us a church alive. We call it in the, church, in the church world, revitalization. Revitalize this church. You know, we're talking through the effects of the pandemic, and in almost every metric of success you could ask for, our church doesn't need revitalization. We've been revitalized. You look at attendance, higher attendance average now than we were before COVID. Look at kids' ministry. Look at giving numbers. You look at baptisms. We've got two more in October for 15 for the year. I can't find a year with 15 baptisms in like 20 years. So any metric you want to choose, revitalized. Our church is a success. We're in a season of ministry faithfulness. But I hope you feel, as I do, that it's not mission accomplished. Wow, God, look at what you've done. Holy Spirit, you have worked great. You've lifted Jesus up, and you're drawing people to yourself, and you're building your church, Jesus. It's so good. Just let us camp out here. Let's enjoy it. Let's just enjoy what we've got going on, this wonderful fellowship and seeing new faces. Oh, it's great. Let's just settle in. And Jesus says, no. We've got to go other places. This is the reason I was sent. You know, I want my definition of success as pastor and as person to reflect Jesus' definition of success. I don't want to get satisfied with a little fruit when the harvest is still white. I want to preach the gospel of the crucified and resurrected king until every man and woman and child in Luling has heard. Every last one of them, they should know that Jesus, the Son of God, lived a sinless life for them. And if they'll trust him and repent of their sins, they'll be saved. Everybody needs to know that. But you know, if we did that and filled this sanctuary up ten times over, there'd still be thousands of people in our one-mile radius who didn't know Christ. 
And then you maybe expand your circle like I did this week for our Noah's Ark Carnival ad on Facebook. Stretch it out to 15 miles in our church. So Kingsbury, Lockhart, get the idea, Harwood. 40,000 people, Facebook says, live in that 15-mile radius. And you know it's true. Facebook knows what you ate for breakfast yesterday. They know how many people live in our 15-mile radius. 40,000 people in a 15-mile radius of this church. You know how many times we'd have to, how many services we'd have to have every weekend if the Lord reached them all through us? But I'm not satisfied with a little fruit. I want what Jesus wants. And Jesus is saving a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and language. There are people in this city who are going to be with us in heaven, and they don't know it yet. That's the mission of God. That's bigger than our mission. It's bigger than our ministries. It's bigger than our programs. It's bigger than our church. And if we join Jesus on his mission, that's what we'd be about. And so here's the two challenges I want to give you this morning. If you want Jesus' standard of success to be your standard of success, right here. Refuse to be so caught up in the work of ministry that you neglect your relationship with God. Brad, are you hearing this? This is for me as much as it is for you. Don't get so focused on the work of ministry that you neglect your relationship with God. Some of y'all have taken on incredible responsibilities and burdens over the last two years. You're doing more now than you've ever done before for God. Don't get so focused on the daily grind of projects and things like that that you forget what God is up to. That, That ministry fruit always flows from a direct connection with God. Prioritize it. You can't be the spouse you want to be without it. You can't be the parent you want to be. You can't be the deacon or Sunday school teacher. You can't be just the regular old church member that you want to be unless your relationship with God is deeper tomorrow than it is today. So, number one, refuse to be so caught up in the work of ministry that you neglect your relationship with God. And two, refuse to get satisfied with fruit, but look beyond it to the mission of God. Can I pray for you?